This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. According to the 2019 National Survey on Drug Use and Health, nearly 26% of individuals 18 and older reported that they engage in binge drinking, and slightly over 6% in heavy alcohol use within the past month. Binge drinkers were 70 to 90 times more likely to have an alcohol-related emergency department visit According to the study, they estimated that nearly 15 million people ages 12 and older had alcohol use disorder. And it's also known that those with alcohol use disorder commonly seek care from a primary care provider for an alcohol-related medical problem. So this is a common problem, and we do see these patients in our office practice. But do we recognize them as having an alcohol use disorder? We'll discuss how we can identify these patients and how we can help them. Our guest today is Dr. Terry Schneekloth, a psychiatrist and addiction specialist at the Mayo Clinic. Terry, welcome. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Well, this term is somewhat new to me, and I'm just wondering, you know, the medical community likes to rename things. Is, is alcohol use disorder the same as alcoholism? Well, it's close. It includes alcoholism. What shifted was with the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. When we went from the fourth one to the fifth one, and that's now been about uh, seven, eight years, we went from the categories of alcohol abuse and alcohol dependence, and they were lumped together as alcohol use disorders. Why that's significant for the clinician in thinking about what sort of uh, assessment and plan to make with the patient is that alcohol abuse is a misuse. There are problems related to drinking, but the patient can back up. If the patient is concerned about it, they haven't lost control of their drinking. And so they can reduce their drinking back within a normal range of social alcohol use. Whereas with alcohol dependence, and that is really equivalent to alcoholism, People are losing control over their drinking. They're oftentimes not able to stop their drinking. Their drinking life really has a life of its own. And they are the ones who are needing abstinence. So just going back to your question about alcohol use disorder, that embodies both the former abuse and dependence. All right, that's clear. So is there an age group that has a higher number than others in uh, alcohol use disorder? You know, what's fascinating to me working in addictions for several decades now is that there was a study done about 20 years ago showing that the majority of people who meet criteria for a moderate or severe alcohol use disorder for alcoholism, they have the problem by the time they're 19. So it really speaks to the strong genetic component of this. The groups that are the largest, about 35% fall into the 18 to 24 year old group. So we're really talking about substantial number of high dose drinkers that meet the criteria in their late teens, early 20s. But there's also, if you regrouped, there's about 35% between ages 25 and 44. Now the group in treatment is much older. So if you're looking at addiction treatment populations, the point at which people get into addiction treatment to have something done for their drinking problem is in the mid to late 40s. So people have generally had the problem for years. There have been multiple consequences that have finally led to them seeking some help. Hmm. 
What are some of the risk factors for this condition? Very high risk factor is genetics. If you have a parent, either your mother or your father who has alcoholism or alcohol dependence, your risk is in the 50th percent range. If you have two alcoholic parents, you're talking about a 50 to 70% risk. Now, really the primary identifying phenotype that's been observed in those people who have family histories are a low response to alcohol or high tolerance. Another really great study that was done about 20 years ago looked at sons of alcoholics when they were freshmen in college. And the way the study was structured is that they were given a set dose of vodka, and then they were given a number of fine motor skills, neurologic tests, rapid alternating movements, finger nose, finger test. Those who appeared as if they hadn't had any alcohol at all, who really had high tolerance were the ones that 20 years later were alcoholic. Those who clearly were under the influence of alcohol when they received a certain dose did not go on to develop problems. So that aspect of having inborn high tolerance is not a good thing. Other factors that are contributors certainly could be comorbid significant psychiatric disorders, Approximately 50% of people with schizophrenia have alcohol use disorders. We see up to two thirds of women with alcohol use disorders that have primary depression or anxiety. History of trauma can be a predictive factor of someone going on to later in life, initially coping with traumatic memories uh, with drinking and then eventually evolving into an alcohol or other substance use disorder. You mentioned the importance of genetics. And as a primary care provider, if we have a patient who we determine has a fairly strong family history of alcohol dependence, what should our recommendations be to them? Should we just tell them to be careful? Should we advise them to be abstinent? Uh, how far should we go with our recommendations? That's a great question because we don't necessarily have reason to believe that they will go on to develop problems if they are not drinking beyond the standards recommended by the National Institute of Health through the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, which has set parameters or limits on social drinking. So there's social drinking, there's at-risk drinking, meaning you're going above the social drinking, but you don't have problems yet. And then there is abuse, dependence, or alcohol use disorders. Those limits in the U.S. for men under age 65 are no more than 14 standard drinks in a week, no more than four in one day. For women under 65, it's no more than seven in a week, no more than three in a day. So that's getting at the overall exposure of your brain to alcohol per week, as well as one-time use or the binge drinking. And you know the earlier statements you, know, you made about the risk people put themselves at when they're binge drinking. And it's been shown that if people keep their drinking within those limits, the likelihood of them ever having a problem is one in a hundred. And so for the primary care physician, you know, to be asking those questions about quantity and frequency will really guide them in making recommendations to their patients about whether they need to reduce their drinking and the risk level they're putting themselves at, and then being able to talk about the genetics that you particularly want to be careful because drinking those higher doses can lead to the loss of control that is the primary symptom of alcoholism. It's 
always a difficult situation when you've got a patient that has had a family history of alcohol abuse. And a lot of my practice has been hyperlipidemia. And, you know, we're telling patients that, you know, moderate alcohol use actually is beneficial for your lipid profile. But um, I've always found it difficult to kind of balance that recommendation versus what harm I might be doing in some patients. Yes, I, I think that that is an area where the primary care physician really needs to play on the side of caution. You know, we're you know, familiar with the study in 2017 in the British Journal of Medicine indicating that when you're drinking those lower doses of alcohol, you're decreasing risk of a number of cardiovascular risk factors of, of MI, of a, ischemic stroke, the study indicated that you're decreasing the risk of those cardiac problems if you're having seven or less a week, and you're increasing the risk of those same problems if you're drinking higher doses. And I often find that, um, you know, it's the patients that are drinking those higher doses, at least as they're filtering through my door, that are much more eager to say, well, I drink this amount of red wine because I want to protect my heart health, but the mm -hmm. dose they're drinking it in is putting them at, at significant risk for damaging their heart health. And so I think caution in that area and you know, recognizing that as much as heart health may improve, that there are a number of other systems that may be negatively affected even by some of the lower doses of alcohol use. Well, you mentioned the uh, amount of alcohol consumed and, uh, you know, a rule of thumb that we've been taught when we were in training is that you can basically double the amount that the patients state that they're uh, typically consuming. Is that still a good rule or is, uh, has that changed? I think that that still applies if people have a drinking problem. It's getting at, you know, does there appear to be minimization here? Is there real inconsistency in the report that the patient is giving as opposed to the report that the family is given? Or are there you know, physical factors, laboratory tests that suggest a much higher dose than they are reporting? Uh, we will see the history for alcoholics change substantially over the course of an addiction treatment program. So, you know, that example that you give of you could essentially be doubling that dose. If someone is known to have an alcohol use disorder and they're coming into treatment, they usually are you know, significantly minimizing or underestimating the dose that they drink, sometimes double, sometimes four times the amount that they're actually disclosing. Well, let's talk about how we as primary care providers can recognize patients with an alcohol problem. Are there some questions that are determined to be a, you know, a good question to ask if we don't have a lot of time to help uh, give us the clue that there might be an alcohol use disorder? I would encourage primary care physicians to think about an alcohol use screen in their waiting rooms, you know, before their patients come in to give it some sort of periodicity. One that is, you know, freely available is from the World Health Care Organization, uh, from WHO. It's the AUDIT. Many people would be familiar with this. The acronym, so the Alcohol Use Disorder Identification Test. It's only a 10-question test. There's a three-item version of it. And it's getting at what we've been talking about, these issues of quantity and frequency. Because generally, there's less defensiveness 
when people are asked simply how many days a week do you drink and on a drinking day, how many standard drinks do you have? And that gives the physician right off a degree of quantity and frequency. And the patient isn't necessarily going to hesitate to say, well, you know, I do drink a six pack or I do drink a 12 pack, which is going to be this immediate red flag because the number three question in the audit is related to how frequently people are drinking six or more drinks. So that information is going to be very helpful. You know, many physicians remember the caged questions from their medical training. While those can be helpful, you know, it's primarily getting at others expressing concern about the amount that they're drinking. Patients will frequently say that they've never felt guilty about their drinking, even if they drink in high doses. And the majority, even of alcoholics, may not report ever having the eye opener. So I would say that that is a place to start. And then in you know, doing screening laboratory tests, if a you know, physician is feeling an enlarged liver or an ultrasound has shown fatty liver, to think about in addition to standard liver function tests, getting an AST, ALT, and looking at that ratio to see if there is a two to one ratio to get a GGT, which is less commonly ordered, but is the most sensitive liver function test in picking up recent heavy alcohol use. Let's talk a little bit about treatment. How effective is treatment for individuals who seek it? You know, I earlier talked about this study done about 20 years ago. The acronym is NISARC, and it was done by the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. And one thing that is really impressive with that data is it showed that the majority of people who meet the criteria for an alcohol use disorder stop drinking on their own. They never go to AA. They never get involved in treatment. And it's usually when their physician has told them to stop or something has happened in their life that has been very negative because of their drinking. And I think it speaks to the role of the primary care physician of simply bringing this out as an issue, or I'm concerned that your drinking has a negative impact on your health. Now, for those who go on to need help for their drinking, and there are subtypes of alcoholics and some being more chronic and relapsing. There have been studies both of residential as well as intensive outpatient programs. When you look at the outcomes of those studies, those patients who maintain complete abstinence for the first year after treatment is usually anywhere in the 15 to 30% range. But even for some of the best residential programs where the complete abstinence is 30% range, you know, there are a substantial number of patients that may have one slip and then reestablish their abstinence or they get back into additional treatment. So as, as alcoholism has been compared to diabetes, has been compared to hypertension in terms of the needs for repeated treatment and refining the treatment plan over the course of the year following treatment, the outcomes are really fairly comparable. And I think it's important to think of alcoholism or alcohol use disorders as a chronic illness in that respect, because part of the frustration is, well, I've gone through this once already, they did treatment and failed it. And we don't tend to use that same language or think about you know, failing blood pressure control or failing diabetes. We think about what do we need to do to intensify the treatment course here in order to lead to better control or success. And I think back to the patients that I've had where I've been successful in either convincing them to cut back on their alcohol intake 
or seek treatment or stop drinking completely, um, it's been most successful when I've been able to show them some abnormal lab tests that mm -hmm. show what damage this is actually being done or what's being done to their uh, body. You know, uh, liver enzyme elevation, uh, uh, macrocytosis, uh, maybe uh, fatty liver on ultrasound. Uh, they seem to take things much more seriously when I can show them some hard evidence of this is the harm this is doing. And is that often true for others? Yes, I think your example just speaks to the power of motivational enhancement. You know, when we get at what people are most concerned about, and generally they're most concerned about their health and impairing their health, that checking those labs, looking whether there's macrocytosis, doing the ultrasound of the liver, talking with them about the impact on the brain and potentially on their coordination with the cerebellum or about their sexual function, aspects of health that they are really concerned about in the role of alcohol, that that you know, can move them over time you know, to getting the help that they need. In the same way, talking about uh, interpersonal relationships, if that is information that you know, the primary care provider has, you know, if a spouse is called, if the children have had an intervention, and to talk with them about their families and engage them on that level, because the person with the drinking problem generally is not wanting to look at that, or it's wanting to minimize that, or, oh, my wife is overly concerned, or my husband is very picky and his dad was alcoholic, and so he doesn't think anyone should drink, or those sorts of rationalizations. But if it's spoken about in terms of how this is negatively affecting their relationship and really drawing on their love for their spouse or their children, that can often move people to setting goals and then being able to work with them on those goals. Mm -hmm. I think some of the most difficult and challenging patients I've had is when the spouse calls before the patient actually comes in for their appointment and says, you know, John drinks an awful lot and it's ruining our marriage. It's causing all kinds of problems, but don't tell him I told you. And the patient comes in and gives no clues for their history. Laboratory tests are normal and I'm kind of striking out here. I can't get him to admit that there is an alcohol problem and I can't let him know that his wife called me. So those, those are challenging, but uh, usually you can find something which suggests there's some uh, alcohol issues going on. Well, that puts you in a bind. You know, I just encourage clinicians to, even in the initial phone call with family members, you know, to say to them, this is really unlikely to have an impact unless I can get you in with them for an appointment and we can talk about this together. And, and to ask the patient, you know, can I see you back after we get these laboratory results in, in two or three weeks with your spouse, just to hear if he or she has any problems, you know, any concerns about your drinking or concerns about your health to keep it very broad, which leads to them allowing you to have the spouse come in and then to talk about it together. You know, so critical in those moments for it not to be a two-on-one, we're ganging up, but we're talking about concerns, we're talking about the medical facts and protecting their health and how do we move this forward to help them. Yeah. And just the fact that the spouse does not want to be involved suggests there's probably more involved than an alcohol use problem. There's some relationship issues there too that need to be dealt with. So let's say a patient is diagnosed by a primary care provider as having alcohol issues, and they agree to treatment. What are they likely to experience? If I refer a patient to you or to other addiction specialists, 
what kind of treatment are they likely to encounter? Well, what I would encourage people to look for in, in directing their patients is programs that philosophically you know, utilize really updated treatment types. And that is often going to be a, a mix of a theoretic approach, not just all one type, cognitive behavioral, 12-step, motivational enhancement. Because when we send people off to treatment, what that usually consists of is an intensive outpatient program, which is anywhere from 40 to 60 hours, or a one-month residential program. And generally, people do not get into the one-month residential program unless they've had relapses after uh, first trying the intensive outpatient program. So at the intensive outpatient program of 40 to 60 hours, it's likely to be several days a week, anywhere from two to five hours per day of treatment. There would be both a group therapy as well as individual sessions with a counselor in which people are learning strategies for maintaining their abstinence, for relapse prevention. And when I talk about the philosophy of the program, whether it's cognitive behavioral or more based on the 12 steps of AA, that is gonna determine more of what skills they're utilizing in maintaining their abstinence. Most of these programs are going to encourage the person in early recovery to attend self-help meetings as well, such as AA meetings in the community. There's something else called smart recovery in the community, which is very cognitive behavioral based. There is another group called rational recovery. There is a, a Christian organization called Celebrate Recovery. These meetings are in most larger cities and AA meetings are in most small towns across the country. And the patient would be encouraged to develop a sober support system through those meetings. The residential program is just going to be a more intensive version of that and provides that protected environment for establishing that first month of abstinence. You know, for some people, they have lost so much control over their drinking that they find that they can't establish that abstinence at all outside of a structured setting. I've had a number of men and women with alcohol problems say to me that they feel like they didn't even wake up for the first few weeks after their last drink. And that can in part be too by the, from the medications that they're taking as a component of their alcohol withdrawal before they can best utilize those relapse prevention skills and keep their recovery going longer term. Is there any pharmacotherapy available? In the past, I know all we really had was uh, disulfiram or uh, Anabuse. Is there anything new out there for help? Well, it isn't so new at this point point. There are three FDA-approved medications, and the first you mentioned, isulfiram, which is really you know, targeted at this uh, reaction in the breakdown of alcohol so that you're having a buildup of aldehyde in the system and having this flush reaction or feeling very unwell. The second medication that came out that has been helpful is naltrexone. And naltrexone is the opioid blocking agent. It's associated with diminishing some of the reward, the reward pathways of the brain and the, uh, the euphoric experience people have from drinking. So it has been primarily found from the studies of naltrexone that anyone who has a slip is less likely to have a major relapse because they're not experiencing an intoxicated feeling or buzz from drinking. And there is likely to be some decrease in craving to drink 
the first U.S. marketed medication targeting craving as the goal is a camprosate or trade name Camprol, which affects the glutamate system in the brain and really dampens a hyperglutamatergic state that the brain is in with regular high-dose drinking. And that has been shown to reduce the risk of going back to drinking. But it generally should not be started until a patient has been off alcohol for seven to 10 days after last drink. There are three other medications that have been shown in both US and international studies to decrease risk of relapse that are not FDA approved. So pyramate being one of them, uh, gabapentin, and also baclofen. All can be a good adjunct, but in and of themselves are unlikely to help a patient establish and maintain longer-term abstinence. Okay. Well, Terry, let's uh, summarize. Uh, Can you give us about two or three key points regarding alcohol use disorders? You know, I'd say as the first point to the primary care physician is You've got to look for this because we're talking 10 to 20% of the U.S. population having these problems. And study after study has shown that the prevalence is much higher in primary care settings. And so to think about this as a potential problem for your patient, if their symptoms fit into what could potentially be alcohol-induced symptoms, And I might especially say with men and women who are reporting depression to you, but you believe they're minimizing their drinking. You know, the first that I think we all need to keep in mind, and we need to share this with our patients, is is hopefulness. This is a very treatable problem. And the primary care physician plays such a critical role in moving people forward and either reducing their drinking or seeking help for an addiction. You know, I would just say, finally, that this is a very slow process for many patients, and it needs to be careful documentation of this was talked about, patients set this goal, and then when you see them a year later and the labs still indicate high-dose drinking, and it's a topic there, again, not wanting to go back to, that you stick with it and try to move the patient along because it may be one year, it may be five or 10 years before you can draw on that history and that rapport that you have with the patient to help the patient in achieving abstinence and that transformation that it leads to in their lives and their family lives when there isn't an alcohol problem disrupting at all. Well, we've been discussing alcohol use disorder with Dr. Terry Schneekloth, a psychiatrist and addiction specialist at the Mayo Clinic. Terry, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. This is a really important topic. Thanks so much for having me. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe, stay healthy, and see you next week.